0: Welcome to the Fatties Community Podcast. I'm here with one of our current parents, Navraj Ghali. Navraj is a senior lecturer in climate law at Edinburgh University. He tells me he was previously a barrister in London, a lecturer at King's London, and began his undergraduate degree at Cambridge University, followed by further studies at the European Institute um, in Florence and also the University of California in Berkeley. Delighted that Navraj is with us. And obviously, as COP26 has just closed at the weekend, it's a perfect opportunity for us to understand a bit more about climate law. And actually, Navraj, that's really where I'd like to start. Um, Can you tell me a bit about climate law? I think in terms of a context, that would be a particularly good introduction.
1: Sure. Okay. well, thanks very much for that. And thanks for asking me to do this. It's a real pleasure to speak to the wider community. Um, So starting point, what is climate law? It's... um, one way of answering that question is to say that it's the it's any body of law which relates to the climate and in particular to climate change. Um, so, you know, I suppose instinctively people would start thinking about environmental law and perhaps planning law. Um, but when you uh, think about it a little bit further, you'll, you know, very quickly come to the realisation that practically any body of law relates to to climate change or is affected by climate change so for example there's a lot of uh, activity going on around the world um, trying to ensure that companies listed companies um, invest their money in what invest what shareholders money our money our pensions uh, in ways which is aligned to um, the say the goals of the Paris Agreement or the um science on climate change so in that sense you know company law is climate law Um, and you know you could go down the line there's a lot of work being done on cultural heritage on human rights law um investment law there's a broad range of um bodies of law which are implicated by climate law so um it's in that sense it's extremely broad
0: yeah that's really helpful i think that will certainly help um perhaps some of our our younger listeners. So since the Paris Agreement in 2015, how have you seen the sort of growth for the need for climate law?
1: Mm -hmm. So Paris is clearly a totemic moment in um, the development of uh, climate change as an issue of consciousness within the broader Public uh, and for climate lawyers. And the reason it's important for climate lawyers is because the Paris Agreement is a treaty. It's, a, it's an agreement between states um, which has a, a, legal, a legal status. Um, and before that, there were other uh, treaties. Um, but what the Paris Agreement did was really crystallize um, interest, and in particular, I would say corporate interest, around this temperature target so i think most people if they know nothing about climate change will know the idea of two degrees warming or one and a half degrees warming the idea that we've got to keep um anthropogenic climate change to within these guardrails of hopefully no more than one and a half degrees spoiler that will happen um you know we've left it far far too late um and it will be catastrophic for the global south um and 2 degrees warming uh by when it will already be considerably catastrophic for us in the global north um so you know those that sort of uh those ideas of the temperature targets i think have a lot of salience um because of the paris agreement i don't i, I think it would be only Uh, right for me to say that there's a considerable view that the Paris Agreement was an inadequate agreement, um, uh, but we can talk about that perhaps later down the line. Or people could read my work.
0: Um, So COP26 came to agreement at the weekend, Mm -hmm. and certainly the headlines um, appear to be from the agreement a reduction in the use of coal, increased support for adaptation, phasing out of fossil fuel subsidies. Stopping deforestation and really looking at methane emissions Mm. to reduce those. Countries clearly make a lot of pledges. Um, There are over a hundred countries represented at COP26 who sign up to this agreement. This is really a question about how those agreements are then kind of sort of held to account. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it would be really useful to understand some of the methodologies in terms of sort of from your space, from your knowledge, um, and how particular countries may do certain things and how other countries may do certain
1: things? Sure. So I think um, the the first thing to note is that there's a lot of negotiation. I mean, we've clearly seen there's a lot of really hard negotiation around those conclusions, which you just listed. And the reason that they're hard negotiations is because countries care about them. Countries are very reluctant, and we're talking about countries because they're the parties to the agreement. Um, Countries do not lightly undertake these sorts of commitments, and it's it is the case that they're not legally binding. That what was agreed at COP26 is not legally binding, but countries negotiate so hard upon them on them because they fully intend to comply with them. So there's there's really strong political commitments um, to. uh, abiding by them for the most, uh, almost exclusively. I mean, you know, there's a couple of outliers, but broadly that's the position. And for all the major emitters, that's very much the position. Um, so there's a strong sense of political enforcement or political self-enforcement. And the um, the COP process, you know, there's going to be another COP next year. It'll be in Egypt. There'll be one after that in the UAE. Um, and so, you know, they... The process of accountability and political accountability rolls on. That's one point. In terms of um, legal accountability, something that I was asked a lot um, during COP by the media was, um, you know, are these are these commitments which you know you can take to court, and if so, which court and on what basis? And and unfortunately, I think the argument to that is no, um, these are not. Um, It's not that sort of commitment. Having said that, um, I think a lot of people who are listening will be aware of um, this phenomena of climate change litigation, which is going on around the world. We're seeing um, courts at the national, subnational level um, trying to hold companies or corporations or other public bodies to account for their uh, climate actions or inactions. So that's a well-established um, phenomena which is taking place um, everywhere. It used to be a sort of a bit of a Western European game uh, or a US game. It's now taking place practically everywhere where there are courts. Um, of course, there are some jurisdictions where there are courts which are closely aligned to the states or you know, don't have a great deal of autonomy, and uh, we see less action there. So, you know, there are a wide variety of different mechanisms for uh, states to be held accountable. Of course, it's the case that these mechanisms are imperfect. Um, You know, this is the world that we live in. But there's a large effort by a large number of people um, to, uh, you know, hold... um, climate actors to account. And I've got to say, I mean, I think it's really important to say that there have been two, in recent years, two particularly important set of actors. Now, one, obviously, is the children's movement. It's quite phenomenal how uh, the children's movement, and and I don't want to personalise it, but Fridays for Futures movement in particular, have come from nowhere and put global leaders, whether they're public or private actors, under enormous pressure um, and I think that's a you know really remarkable example. I don't think we've ever seen anything like it in any space. Um, and it's tremendous. Um and the but the other one that we've seen, and this has arisen in particular from COP twenty six, is um leaders of the less developed called LDCs, the less developed countries and indigenous people. So these are the people who are the most vulnerable from climate change. And a series of promises have been made to them over decades not being adhered to or the promises themselves have been inadequate. And I think they're losing patience and uh, very understandably. So we're seeing all of, you know, there's a constellation of different mechanisms of um, accountability. Some of them are harder than others, but they all contribute. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I have another question, actually, um, which has kind of come into my head as you've been talking, Mm -hmm. which is actually about the sort of more, I suppose, kind of corporation level Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of large corporates and their shareholders and certainly it's something we're seeing a lot of now or starting to read a lot about um, in terms of those shifts that are going to happen that are starting to happen where larger companies realize that either to satisfy their customers or perhaps to satisfy their own consciences that they are trying hard to become kind of greener and more sustainable Mm -hmm. in their actions. In terms of an enormous company, um, a large global multinational and huge supply chains that they have, is that also another place where some of the sort of corporate law, corporate climate law will start to come in?
1: Absolutely. So yesterday, we're recording this on the 16th of November, so on the 15th, um, Shell, announced that they were going to relocate from jointly listed in the Netherlands and uh, the UK to UK only. Now, one of the drivers for that, there are a number of different drivers, but one of the drivers for that decision um, was a case um, that was brought in the Netherlands against Shell by, I'm very proud to say, one of the alumni of Edinburgh University, somebody I taught and still work closely with, um, who challenged... Dutch, working for a Dutch NGO who challenged Shell on the basis of their um, emissions reduction plan and said that it was basically the Dutch court concluded that the plan was inadequate from the perspective of um, a combination of tort law and human rights law. Um, and there's a suggestion that Shell is relocating partly to um, uh, evade the jurisdiction of the Dutch court's Um, We'll see whether that is a successful strategy for them or not. But yeah, absolutely. Corporates um, of all sorts um, have made, uh, have responded to those sorts of pressures, which you just described. And now we see that I think it's something like 75 or 80% of global GDP is now subject to some sort of net zero commitment. So whether it's states or corporations or pension funds, fund management, all of those massive multi-trillion dollar uh, asset vehicles have made uh, net zero commitments. The quality of those commitments, the sincerity of those commitments, the bindingness of those commitments is what the next decade is you know, for people like me, is really going to be about. Mm. Um, so many fine words have been spoken. The implementation of those um, is very challenging. Mm.
0: Indeed, indeed. I mean, fingers crossed and everything crossed that, that 80% <laughs> of those large corporations are joined by another 20 mm-hmm. The levers and constraints that law can bring um, helpfully to the climate solution, I suppose. Um, what do you think are the key sort of next steps, or what are your hopes? I think your hopes are the best thing. Realistic hopes.
1: Realistic hopes. Um, it, it, that's a really hard question. Um, I would say, realistically, I would hope that there was a, 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 a an understanding of uh, a variety of different levels, so from individual consumers up to governments and all points in between um, about what the real-life impacts of climate change are going to be. Uh, and I think we saw, you know, with floods in Germany, forest fires in Greece, um, you know, the decimation of large parts of the Western United States, that you know, even in the most advanced, resilient um, uh, countries in the world, there can be no hiding uh, hiding places. Um, it's uh, And if this is what 1.1 1. 1 degrees of warming does, 1.5 degrees will be... Um, a scalar difference so that sort of understanding i think is the first step to the decarbonization of every aspect of our lives and i think when we get you know people need to appreciate that net zero means emitting as much you know we will all have to emit um you know more or less as much as a 15th century european peasant you know, that's the level. And if you think about what that life was like, but we don't we want to emit at that level, but maintain or even increase our level of uh, welfare, you know, we all want to live in the way we want to live and want our children to live even better than that, and so on. But you have to do so on a a decarbonized basis. And that's a phenomenal challenge. I mean, this is bigger than the Industrial Revolution, but not from 1750 to today. It's from today to 2050. So you know, 29 years to turn around this phenomenal tanker. It's a real challenge. But if you're an uh, an engineer or a physicist or a chemist or a lawyer or a political scientist or a sociologist, these are the biggest challenges that you could ever wish to have I mean or or finance I mean it's it's a real it is the biggest challenge that there is um and all hands to the pump Mm.
0: thank you I mean I think actually that probably is the perfect kind of summary ending um in terms of our our short kind of conversation and a a dip into this field Um, I think in terms of exactly the breadth of this challenge and the scale and the size of this challenge. And actually I haven't heard myself that um, analogy of the, of the carbon emissions of the 15th century peasants. And I think that's a really good one to kind of throw in Mm -hmm. of of that versus the life that we want to have. Um, And all the things and innovation, I mean, innovation has got to be absolutely massive and creativity to help, um, help make the difference that we need to make um is there anything else that you would you would like to add um at this stage
1: um well let me just say something about innovation since you mentioned it so um the science and when i say the science i mean the you know the consensus view of science that you know thousands of uh, scientists around the world have um, concluded on is that given where we are now we to get to net zero by 2050 even if we abate or reduce our emissions you know in the most optimistic scenarios we're still going to have to do something called removals so carbon taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere somehow and storing it Um, and so those that's called ggr greenhouse gas removals And with colleagues at Oxford and Imperial and Manchester, a big, big multi-million pound project, we're looking at just that. And it's a combination of work with geologists and economists, um, business modelers, as well as lawyers and social psychologists about how you can actually turn what is currently a non-existent industry, um, and get the sort of level of removals that we require by 2050, and the analysis suggests that this is, as by 2050, the removal sector will have to be as large as the current electricity generation sector. You know, so that's a big chunk of the economy, but it's doing that zero in 2021 to you know, massive in 2050. Um, so that's a sort of a rate of innovation which is absolutely unprecedented it's it's sort of uh you know people refer to the manhattan project which i don't think is a particularly happy analogy um or you know what the way that nations tool up in wartime perhaps but it's bigger than that and much harder than that Mm. um and more peaceful than that um so you know um that's that's a really big challenge so if anybody who's listening wants to think about removals and what the future of removals looks like and how you build business models for that how you have storage for it and so on and so forth how you finance Mm -hmm. it how you regulate it all of that sort of stuff it's really interesting stuff
0: Mm. really interesting (laughs) i i want to know more about that no that's great well thank you so much um it's been a pleasure and we're delighted um, to have had you on. And I think, obviously, this is a particularly interesting topic that is absolutely, as you've said, definitely not going away. So I'm sure we shall have much more kind of in the climate change in the coming months and years, um, because it's certainly super important to us all. So thank you very much.
1: Good. All right, then. Thanks very much.